Hello, friends. It's good to see you again this morning. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to say uh, a word of encouragement to you. Uh, the, the service that, that you are experiencing currently is specifically designed intentionally for your spiritual well-being. Uh, for example, the passage just read from Isaiah 42 was carefully chosen so that you might connect some dots between that and what will be preached here in a second. The songs chosen, the scriptures chosen, the prayers prayed are all designed with that in mind to encourage your, your spiritual wholeness. And so my encouragement to you is to look for those things. Um, the, the longer you're here, the more you'll see the connections, the more your heart will be encouraged and the stronger your spirit will be. And so uh, I just say that so that you don't think that, you know, as we move from song to prayer to song to reading, that it's a random uh, matter. It's, it's designed to bring your heart in close communion with God. Uh, <clears throat> do you like pictures? Are you, are you a picture fan? I think most of us are because pictures remind us of things, right? We, we take pictures of vacations. We take pictures of family and friends and we hang them around and uh, put them on our fridge and everything else with pictures. We love pictures. It reminds us of good things, right? Uh, but pictures also uh, act as a, as a, uh, a drawing and, and it's just anticipation. For example, um, my wife and I have never been to Hawaii, but we look at those pictures and go, ah, someday, someday. And so pictures act not only as something that is a fond memory, but of a future anticipation, right? This, this is what pictures do for us. And it's a good thing. And so, as we look to our passage today, which is Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, you can turn there if you'd like, uh, I would like to say that this particular text acts just like that. It, it, it is a picture of, it reminds us of what Mark has already covered, what he's already discussed, but also like a travel website, it, it shows us what is awaiting us in the future in this short book of the Gospel of Mark. And this particular section, this, this section that represents both pictures looking back and looking forward, is of particular imp of importance because of this particular reality, looking back and looking forward. Mark's overall objective, as we've learned, is to present the true identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the God of the universe, the, the solution to our chaos, and then inviting us to follow him. That's the the objective of Mark here. So if you're hearing calls from God to make much of Christ, to, to be much with Christ, you're hearing Mark's gospel, all right? So why should you listen today particularly in case you're tempted not to? It's because God included these verses here to affirm the identity of Jesus once again and remind us that we have a solution to our personal chaos in the person of Jesus Christ presented here in these few verses. So if you're like the rest of the world and have your share of chaos, listen to what God has for you in these verses this morning as he persuades you through his, uh, his writer Mark to run to Jesus with all this stuff that's concerning you right now. 
okay? Instead of trying to keep all the plates spinning like we do, which is natural to us, how about this? Let them fall and run to Jesus. That's what, that's what you're going to hear today. So, how was Jesus <clears throat> presented in the Gospel of Mark as the solution to chaos? Let me remind you, okay, because it's, it's such a, a wonderfully encouraging story and picture. So first of all, the way that Jesus is presented as the solution to chaos is that Mark presents him as a preacher of repentance. A preacher of repentance. Every time Jesus is opening his mouth, he's preaching about the gospel of God, about the repentance from sin, turning to God. That's what gospel preaching is. And so when Jesus was preaching about the gospel, about the kingdom of God, it included every single time this call to repentance. And what is that? It's a turning from self and a turning to God. That's all repentance is. And so he preached repentance, and this is why he preached repentance. Um, when people turn from their sin, which is when they repent from their sin, whether in the first century or today, guess what happens to your chaos? It subsides every time. Every time you turn from your own selfish pursuit, every time you turn from things that distract you from God towards God, then guess what? Chaos dissipates. And this is what is intended. And so as God designed us to live within his order, when we don't, we see chaos rise. When we follow his order and plan, we see chaos diminish. And so Jesus here is presented as a solution to chaos because he preached repentance from sin. Secondly, Jesus healed diseases, right? You can't get in one page into the Gospel of Mark without seeing this. He's healing sick people all the time. And if you've ever been sick or injured and then returned to health, either through medical help or, or time, you get a small sample of how these first century people felt after Jesus healed them. I know how it feels to be healed from either a sickness or an injury, and it's a good feeling to get back to normal, isn't it? That's how these people felt in a little bit different way. But their chaos that came with their disability or their sickness was immediately diminished when they came into the presence of Christ. Now, some could see for the first time. Some could walk for the first time. Uh, they could participate in society as normal human beings because of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that if you come to Jesus, you're not going to get sick. Or if you come to Jesus, he's going to heal your cancer. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that when you embrace Jesus as your Lord, you'll be assured that your sickness, your, your disability, whatever it is that's causing you issues, is ordained by a loving God for your good. That's what you learn when you embrace Jesus Christ. Thirdly, how does Mark present Jesus as the solution to chaos? He crushed demonic activity. And if anything brought chaos in Jesus' world, it was demonic activity. And he crushed it. We might think, well, <laughs> we don't have much demonic activity going around in our day, so what's the good of that today? But let me ask you to consider something. Uh, Consider what's behind the sin of coveting, of lust, of pursuing worldly comforts uh, over what you should. The answer is not Ford, Chanel, and Bank of America. That's not the answer. The answer is, well, they're the vehicles, but the answer is Satan and his demons are behind it. 
In the same way that they were behind what, they, what we've been reading about, they're behind all the things that disrupt God's order here now in our day. And back then, he restored calm and order by crushing the chaos of the demonic world. And he does the same today in your life and mine. Next, he spent time with and trained his disciples. He spent time with and trained his disciples. And you say, well, how does that resolve chaos? Well, think about this. How would your life change if you spent more time with Jesus? <laughs> the same way their lives changed. So when you spend time with Jesus, when you're trained by Christ through his word, by the Holy Spirit, chaos diminishes. You become more like him. You're able to look at the world through his eyes and see things from his perspective. You grow in the wisdom and knowledge of God, which helps your chaos subside. All these things, just to remind you of where we've been, okay, in the, in the Gospel of Mark. Let me read for you the passage, and then let's dive into it. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around, the Ty around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Here we have two pictures. One looking back, one looking forward. One recovering what Mark has already covered by way of reminder. And the second picture letting us know, helping us anticipate what is yet to come in Mark's gospel. Let's look at this snapshot, that is, remembering the past, all right? Mark begins his gospel how? Well, turn back with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. How does Mark begin this amazing little book? He says this, and this is the only time he says it. The rest of the time, he's leaving it up to you to pay attention to the story. But he says this starting off. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's saying, here he is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God of the universe. I'm going to present him to you. Now listen to the stories. All right? So as soon as he presents Jesus as the God of heaven and earth, he starts right in with the evidence to support such a claim. What's it say in the very next two verses? He quotes Old Testament prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. All right, so he's foretold of in the Old Testament. Jesus was anointed and affirmed by God the Father in his baptism. Remember, just a couple verses down from here. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Then he demonstrated authority over Satan, power over satanic uh, temptation uh, and in the wilderness experience. Then he showed sovereignty over Satan's focus, which is people. Remember we covered that? That's an important point in Gospel of Mark. Satan's focus is you and me. And Jesus demonstrates authority over that focus. He says, no, you're coming with me. You, you, you are coming with me. Jesus did that in verses 16 through 20 of chapter 1. 
Then he taught with authority and persuasion in the next few verses. Then he demonstrated power over sickness, handicaps, and demons by healing, by restoring, by casting out. All these to just simply show the evidence of Mark's claim to Jesus' identity. Everywhere he went, as I said earlier, Jesus preached the gospel. He forgave sins. He proved to be Lord of the Sabbath. He is indeed who Mark is suggesting him to be, the God of heaven. The question now remains, what are we going to do with him? What are you going to do with the revelation of Jesus Christ, his true identity? These are all his credentials that Mark is presenting. And what an amazing picture it is as Mark records these things. It's, it's interesting to me to, as we read through this book that Mark begins to tell us everybody who understands his thesis that Jesus is God. The demons agree that Jesus is God. Satan acknowledges that Jesus is God. Uh, even at the end of the book, a Roman soldier, a, a Gentile unbeliever acknowledges Jesus is God. But throughout the entire book, no Jews, none of the Jews, the very people he came to save, believed he was God. <laughs> this, is, this is stunning. The, the, very, the very people, and this is what John says in John chapter 1, verse 11, right? He came to his own, his own did not receive him. But God declared him to be God. The demons knew he was God. The, the evidence for his identity was overwhelming, but the Jews didn't know who he was. And you say, why? Weren't they waiting for the Messiah? Yes, but they had a wrong view. They had a wrong perspective. The, the great barriers that kept the Jews from embracing Jesus as their Messiah, listen to this irony, was their own religion. <laughs> their own religion is what was keeping them from embracing Jesus. The very religion that looked forward to the coming Messiah was the religion that kept them from acknowledging, this is him. Well, why? Why did that happen? Well, what is Judaism? It's a monotheistic religion, isn't it? Meaning, there's one God. Not two, not three, not ten. There's one. And so when Jesus shows up and says, I am God, all of them had learned their lesson back in captivity, right? All their, all their forefathers. No, there's, there's only one God, and then you're not him. <laughs> He's there. You're here. That's not the case. You're not God. Their religion wouldn't allow them to see Jesus as God and embrace him as their Lord and Savior. They couldn't see that what was right in front of them because of their religion. It was absolutely stunning. So when Jesus came preaching a new system instead of law and legalism, a new approach to God, it confused them. It, it undid them. We know on this side of Christ that Judaism is an obsolete system. It's, it's a system of types pictures, shadows, pointing to Jesus Christ, what was to come. Think about the Old Testament sacrificial system. All the details of all the different kinds of sacrifices. Guess what they were pointing to? Maybe I should ask it this way. Guess who they were pointing to? Jesus Christ, every single one of them, bringing these sacrifices to the altar. If you look just below the surface, you'll see every single one of them, every single part of, of Jewish worship practices pointed to Christ Jesus. The temple itself, 
if you looked from an aerial view, was laid out in the shape of a cross. And of course, it was, they missed it. They missed it all. In chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, Jesus describes this new way by telling the Pharisees about the arrival of the bridegroom. Remember that? He said, why would, why would the guests of the bridegroom go ahead and fast when the bridegroom's here? Well, he's here. Guess what? He's here. I am he. I bring you new wine, and you can't put new wine in old wineskins. What happens when you do that? It breaks the old wineskins. Guess what? Judaism's broken. I'm bringing new wine. Judaism can't contain it. It's broken. We have to move on to something new. We need a new wineskin. Here it is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he was communicating. In verse 7 here in Mark chapter 3, back there, we see that Jesus withdrew. All right, remember he just got through having a, a pretty intense encounter with the Pharisees. He healed this guy with a withered hand, and they got really upset, and so upset that they joined forces with their enemies, the Herodians, and said, we're going to get you. We're going to get you. Well, because of that, and, and a few other things I'll explain in a minute, Jesus withdrew. He, he pulled away from that uh, opposition uh, for specific reasons. But anyways, Judaism was the problem. Their hard hearts and their commitment to Judaism was the problem. And so Jesus withdrew, and it says in Mark 135 that he rose early in the morning while it was still dark, departed, went out in a desolate place, and there he prayed. My point is, this wasn't his first withdrawal. Jesus withdrew numerous times in his ministry, and for different reasons, but similar. For restoration, the reason you withdraw, the reason you take a vacation is what? Restoration, rejuvenation, renewal. That's what Jesus was doing here. And here we read that he took his disciples with him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Sometimes I think withdrawing is an important strategy for refreshment. Jesus needed that. We need that. We see just here withdrawing occasionally in order to refresh his soul. The withdrawal here in verse 7 was a strategic withdrawal, even more so than what we've already read about. And it says he withdrew to the sea. But you remember where this whole thing took place? Where was this, this story? Capernaum, right? And where's Capernaum? On the sea. So he withdrew to the sea. What does that mean? Well, it simply means he went further north into a more remote place on the Sea of Galilee. So Capernaum, let's say if you see a map here and my face is the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum's right here. The Jordan River runs in right here. He came went up right north to the Jordan River, right where that Jordan flew, flowed into the Sea of Galilee. It was remote. It was isolated. He could refresh himself, refresh his disciples. But what do we discover? The crowds thronged around him there. They came from everywhere, followed him even to that remote location. This is what we see here in verses 7 through 10. The, the crowds were just out of control. It says in Mark chapter 1, verse 45, that after healing the leper, his popularity skyrocketed. You can imagine why. This guy can heal, heal lepers. What else can he do? Let's go see. Right? So he heals this leper in chapter 1, verse 45. The masses start coming, and 40, verse 45 says they came from every quarter. And this is a record of the quarters that he came from. Look at this. This is, this is uh, interesting. It says he, the great crowd, verse 7, followed from Galilee. Where's Galilee? It's in the north, 
up, is there a map up above? Can you see that yet? Map? No? Yes? There is. Good. So can you see the Sea of Galilee? It's in the north. It says, the crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea. Where's Judea? In the south. North, south, and Jerusalem, the capital of the south. And Idumea, which is south of the south. Way north, way south, from beyond the Jordan. That's to the east over there. You see that? Everything, everybody that was over there, to the east of the Jordan. And then from around Tyre and Sidon, northwest of Galilee. Every quarter was coming to Jesus Christ because of what he could do. This is, this is the point. The crowds described in this section were a mix of Jews and Gentiles, not just Jews. The crowds were coming from these four different quarters, and these non-Jews and Jews came from all of these places. Idomea, Tyre, and Sidon were predominantly Gentile. So his, his fame was spreading is the whole point here that Mark is saying. Mixed in with this larger crowd were some important people. Well, important to us. They were unimportant to the rest of the world. You know who they were? The 12 apostles. They were in this crowd. Jesus was pulling them out of this crowd to follow him. He had already identified five, remember, back in chapter one. Andrew, his brother Peter, James, his brother John, and then in chapter two, Levi, the tax collector. Those were the five. When you read John's account of this, John said he had already also called Philip and Nathaniel. So at the most, there were seven guys out of these hundreds of thousands. We're not talking, you know, 50 to 60. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people flocking to Jesus. By far the most popular figure ever in human history. So, Apostles were mixed in with this group. Look at the word crowd. This is just a Bible study lesson for you if you want to learn to study the Bible. As you're reading scripture and you see, see words repeated in close proximity, what does that mean? Pay attention. Look at this. Chapter 7, I mean chapter 3, verse 7, a great crowd. Chapter 3, verse 8, a great crowd. Chapter 3, verse 9, the crowd. What does Matthew, Mark want us to pay attention to? the size of the crowd, it was massive. So much so that Jesus literally couldn't move. He was afraid of being crushed, hence the small boat. Get me in a small boat, get me away from the crowd, they can only come up to their necks in the water and then I can talk. And this is what was happening. And according to Luke and Matthew, even Herod the king wanted to come see Jesus. He was so impressed. Verse 8 tells us why they were coming. Look at verse 8. And you know it already. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came. You and I would also come, I think. Luke 6, 19 says that the power was coming out of Jesus and healing them all. I was thinking about this picture in my mind, speaking of pictures and how Mark is presenting the identity of Christ, thinking, okay, what's happening here? What? Okay, I, I can kind of see the masses. I, I've, I've seen pictures of a Michael Jackson concert. That's amazingly crazy. All the masses filling up the biggest stadiums in the world. Well, that was peanuts compared to this. 
right? What was happening? Well, they were coming because of what he was doing. Luke said that a, a, a pulsing energy was coming out of Jesus. So, here's my picture. You've seen the black and white uh, animated pictures, a person walking through a park, and every step they take, this, that step turns into living color, full color behind them. You've seen those things, right? So black and white out in front, every step going forward, this, the whole scene behind them turns to living color, dynamic color. That's what was going on. Jesus would walk through a crowd full of cripples, demon-possessed people, sick people, whatever their issue was, people, and they would spring to life just from him walking through. Would you show up? <laughs> yes, we would. Yeah, I, I've got a few issues that I'd like taken care of. You know, I got this, that, one other thing. You know, if I could just get near him and people were going nuts to get near him. For obvious reasons. When you start doing things like this, people show up. <laughs> and people do all sorts of crazy things to get their chance at being restored to normal, don't they? I mean, we'll, we'll go to Mexico to get a doctor that will give us certain prescriptions. Think about what you'd do for this. What would you give if you could lose your chaos and return to normal? I've seen painting of Jesus sitting with children on his lap in the shade of a large tree with, you know, these sheep grazing in the background, speaking softly to his disciples. Uh, you know, this idyllic picture, just sweet music you can imagine playing in the background. But the reality of Jesus' ministry was this, a far cry from that idyllic picture. His ministry was mostly, listen, his ministry was mayhem, bedlam, pushing, shoving, clamoring, fighting for a closer spot type of noisy people. His ministry looked massively chaotic because people wanted to be near the source of life. Because of Jesus' growing popularity, of course, it made ministry difficult. Jesus wanted to preach to the crowds about the gospel, about the kingdom. He wanted to train his disciples to prepare them for future apostleship. He wanted to nurture his own soul, nurture the souls of those that were close to him, but was complicated by the pressing crowds, literally night and day, who were interested in one thing, getting what they wanted. And they didn't want the gospel. They wanted to be healed. They wanted to be fed. Listen to how Jesus, and Jesus wasn't oblivious to this, this is what Jesus said in John 6, 26, in this very situation that's recorded by Mark. Truly, truly, I say to you, speaking to the crowd, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You know when you're hanging out, you're getting free food. It's kind of like why, why guys go to weddings. You know, there's free food. Go, girls have good motives. Women have good motives going to weddings. No, guys don't. It's about the food. Just admit it, guys. Just admit it. Yeah. And so Jesus told his disciples, hey, get this small boat. I'm not going to be able to, to minister like I'd like unless I have this. I've got to get into it and be able to get offshore a bit. Otherwise, they'll crush me. To a lesser degree, and I should say a much lesser degree, when someone is a servant in the church, uh, similar things happen to them. Uh, 
You know who you can call on in this church, don't you, who will help you at the drop of a bucket? They will. They'll help you. And you know that everybody knows it. And so we call on them. When we need help, we need moving, we need assistance, we need encouragement. We know who to go to. Those people in our church are always busy. And this is good, right? They should be. Um, they say if you want something done, go to a busy person. Don't go to a person who's not busy. They don't know how to get things done. You want something done, go to a busy person. They also say, here's an interesting statistic, listen to this. 80% of what happens in a church is done by 20% of the people. That's a well-known statistic in church life. I'm here to tell you, thankfully, that's not the case at Sun Valley. We have a high percentage of people serving at Sun Valley, which is a joy to my heart. I think I, think I can look out and see, serve, 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 all over this room. And it's wonderful. But in most churches, it's not that way. I think we're an exceptional church, obviously. So... Anyways, but here, here's, a, here's a note of encouragement that's kind of a detour here, but I want to say it because the Holy Spirit's given me opportunity, not only in my preaching, but it's here in the text. Uh, if you're a Christian and you're in the stands as a spectator watching everybody else do Christianity, I would say change that practice. Don't be a Christian spectator the rest of your life. Get involved in God's kingdom. Get involved with God's people. Serve one another. Love people and see what God will do in you. He will use you and you'll be encouraged. You'll benefit as those who will, who receive your ministry. But in, back to verses seven through 12, we read about crowds that seem to have been an interruption to Jesus. It seems like they're interrupting him here, doesn't it? But what have we learned from the Gospel of Mark about interruptions? Are there such things as interruptions in the Christian life? Were these people an interruption to Jesus' ministry? No. They were Jesus' ministry. Are these people that come to you and interrupt your important schedule interruptions to your important life? No. That's at least not the way God intends it. God intends divine appointments, not unfortunate or inconvenient interruptions. So when and it happens daily, doesn't it? View people, we can view people that come up to us and want a part of us for some reason or another as interruptions, or we can view them as ordained by God to come and receive some blessing from us, a divine appointment. That's the way Jesus saw it. He could have said, hey, you guys, there's too many people here. Let's get further north. Let's go way up to the headwaters of the Jordan. Get rid of this group. Or he could have said, hey, give me a boat so I can minister more appropriately to these people. That's what he did. It wasn't an interruption. It was a divine appointment. By the way, <laughs> which he scheduled himself. I'll get to that in a second. And I'm pretty sure that's going to blow your mind. But hold on for that. <clears throat> so every detail of Jesus' ministry was ordained and planned by himself. <laughs> and God ordains our days in similar manner. I think a lot of times we feel distracted from the ministry or distracted from life because of this or that interruption. All along, it's been a divine appointment for our good and the blessing of those around us. I want you to use the example of King David as an example of this very attitude. It says in Acts chapter 13, verse 36, the following, For David, 
after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. He died. Think, ah, great, so what? Well, (laughs) King David, his life was full of interruptions. If there was anybody in the Old Testament that was interrupted, it was King David. Look at his life. Whether it was self-inflicted, created by others who were clamoring for his attention, or, or those inflicted by his enemies, he was constantly interrupted. Constantly. But this verse tells us that all these things fit into the purpose of God in his own generation. David faithfully viewed those things as divine appointments. He was faithful in all these interruptions that came at him to view them as opportunities to minister to people, like Jesus did here in Mark chapter 3. And so turning it on to ourselves, turning that spotlight off of David, off of Jesus, onto us, our objective is to faithfully walk through each day, taking the things as God sends them, ministering to others' needs as God ordains, and God grants us strength and them encouragement from simply being faithful. You don't have to be dynamic. You don't have to be a superhero. You just have to stand up and meet the need that comes right at you. Here's a model. For even the Son of Man. Who's he? Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the question here before we move on to the next point is, do you know... What is God's purpose for you in this generation? Do you know what God's purpose is for you? Well, in case you don't, let me tell you what it is. God's purpose for you, according to Scripture, according to Romans, in numerous places in Romans, is for you to bear fruit by loving people. That's God's purpose for you. It's not to make more money. It's not to have a bigger house, not to have a better car, not to have fill in the blank. God's purpose for you, like David's, to be faithful in your generation is simple. Serve others. This is what Jesus said. This is what Paul said. This is what Peter said. This is what they all say. Anybody who spends time with Jesus will say that. Serve people. Love people. And then we see in verses 11, 12, the next, Jesus is Lord of all. We saw this early on when Mark was first introducing Jesus that he demonstrated power and authority over the demonic world, right? Starting with Satan in the wilderness and then moving through all these different episodes of demonic uh, possession. Then in chapter 1, verse 23, Mark records Jesus' very first encounter with the demon. What happens? The same thing that happens here in chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. The person that's possessed by a demon comes forth screaming and hollering. They bow down in front of Jesus. Jesus commands that demon to come out, and they do. Every single time. It's the same scenario over and over and over. The point, Jesus is Lord of all. If Jesus is Lord of disease, if Jesus is Lord of the weather, he walks on water. If Jesus is Lord of the demonic world, he is Lord of all. He's Lord of all. Which is why he could say, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm just not Lord of the Sabbath. I'm Lord of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday also. I'm Lord of the universe. That's why these demons take off when I show up. That's why the sickness leaves when I say so. I'm Lord of all. 
Mark is presenting the Lord of all to us here. This demon that possessed this particular man recognized Jesus, screamed in horror, and the crowds asked, according to verse 27 of chapter 1, what is this? Even the evil spirits obey him? I can't even get my dog to sit. This guy's casting out demons? <laughs> yeah, and what would they scream every time? You were the son of God. Which is a statement identifying the essential character of God, the essential character of Jesus. And so these demon-possessed people would come before Jesus, bow down, and, and they would be cast out. Look at, look at how it reads in uh, the New Living Translation, Mark chapter 3, verse 11. I think this is on the overhead. And whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, that caught sight of Jesus, the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking, you are the Son of God. They were terrified of the Lord of all. They were sworn enemies to the Lord of all. So bowing down was not a sign of their commitment, their submission to Christ. No, the exact opposite, sign of fear and trembling. So uh, we talked about this later, but I'll say it again in case you're wondering about it. Uh, why did Jesus always tell these spirits to be quiet, not announce his identity? Well, let me, let me ask you this. If you were starting a business and you wanted to get your name out and have a well-known name and, you know, kind of a, creating a culture around your business, would you go hire the first three felons that you could find and say, hey, would you mind announcing my company? No. You would say, hey, no, thank you. Would you mind not say anything about my company? Oh, let me take care of it. That's what was going on here. Jesus didn't want the promotion of the kingdom of God from demonics, demonic activity at all. That's one reason he told them to be quiet. The second, we'll get here in a, to in a second. And this is turning into the preview. This, so we had the snapshot of the past, what we've already covered. Now let's look at how this passage looks into the future of Mark's gospel. First, Jesus ordained his popularity. Jesus ordained his popularity. If you could control your popularity, you'd be a rock star, wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, Jesus ordained his popularity. He controlled it. And you know, I hesitated to even bring this up because it's such a, an obvious observation. Of course he ordained his popularity. He ordains everything. Read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He holds the universe together by the word of his mouth. Whatever he says goes. He ordained his popularity. Why did he ordain his popularity? The life of Christ was precisely planned and ordered by himself to accomplish everything necessary, listen, to save you and me. Everything that transpired in the life of Christ was ordered, was ordained, was controlled by God himself so that you would be saved from your sins. Let me explain. <clears throat> and by the way, this is why I'm making a point of his ordaining his popularity. His popularity has everything to do with you being here this morning. This is a theological point that you must grasp whenever you read scripture. God or Jesus ordained his popularity in order to preach 
to fulfill Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah who would preach. He healed to fulfill Old Testament prophecy that was given that said the Messiah would heal. He exposed hard-heartedness of religious leaders and the ineffectiveness of the religious system to fulfill Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah who would do that. Everything he did was carefully orchestrated to accomplish his purposes in saving his people, including you and me. He controlled his popularity to accomplish, I guess I could say it this way, to accomplish our redemption from beginning to end. And the timing of the work of redemption, his, his experience on Calvary, was critical. His timing to the work of redemption was critical. Hence, him controlling his popularity. Controlling in a positive way, like, come to me, masses, and hold on, masses, that's enough. He controlled it from both sides in order to accomplish the perfect timing of his arrival in Jerusalem on that week to be crucified on that day so that you would be saved. And I'll explain this to you because it's, <laughs> I love it. It's one of my favorite parts about scripture. So, but first, let's get to the second point. Jesus strategically withdrew. He strategically withdrew because his time had not yet come. You'll start catching a, a grasp of this little hint of it. If you'll turn with me to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we're two books away. So turn to John chapter 7. Keep your finger in Mark 3, John chapter 7. Listen to this and worship, okay? Listen to this and worship. Verse 8 of chapter 7. Okay, so Jesus is at this massive feast, and, uh, or he's going to go to this massive feast, and his brothers invite him to go, and he says, no, you go up first. I'm not going to come up, and basically he means until later. Why? What's the next phrase? For my time has not yet come. It's almost like he was in control. Well, yeah, maybe he was. Now, turn over to verse 30 of the same chapter, chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. Who? The Pharisees. They were seeking to arrest him, but even though he was in public, no one laid a hand on him. Why? Oh, next phrase. Because his hour had not yet come. What hour? The hour. His crucifixion hour. Now, turn to chapter 12 in John's Gospel. Look at verse 23. And by the way, this is just three examples, and there probably are seven or eight in the Gospel of John where Jesus said, my time has not come. All right? Chapter 12. Look at how he turns this corner. Verse 23. And Jesus answered them, those who were talking to him about uh, Andrew and Philip's friends. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, you Bible scholars know what happens in John 12, don't you? The triumphal entry, when he comes in Jerusalem for the last time. This is the triumphal entry. So he withdrew from the, the crowds, he withdrew from the opposition back in Mark 3 to control the timing of that final entry into Jerusalem. 
in John 12. This is spectacular. This is divine. This is something only God can do. And what we, what we discover is that he had so much to accomplish during his three-year ministry, he had to hold off the, the inevitable, which was either being placed on the throne of David or placed on the cross. He had to withhold the inevitable of those things so that he could minister to his disciples, so he could preach the gospel, so he could fill Old Testament prophecy, all the above, but the Messiah came to accomplish his purpose and he had to control the details to do so. <laughs> so, he had to die in Jerusalem on, at just the right time to perfectly accomplish what he came to do. And you're thinking, okay, uh, what was that? God's plan, when did God's plan start, begin? When did, when did he start the planning process? Before time began, Ephesians 1 tells us. Before time began, Jesus made a plan with the Father and the Holy Spirit about the, the plan of redemption, about saving you sitting here this morning. This is what happened before time began. Before time began, Jesus was to die during the Feast of Passover. During the Feast of Passover happened once a year. So three years of Passover's go by, Jesus on that last Passover enters Jerusalem knowing exactly what would happen and the timing of it was perfect. You remember when we studied the Gospel of John here and Jesus came riding in to Jerusalem on that colt of a donkey and they were throwing down their palm branches, throwing down their cloaks, it's called Palm Sunday. And they received him and they were shouting, Hosanna to the highest, King of David. I mean, Son of David, King of Israel, all this stuff. Remember that? Do you know it was entering Jerusalem on that very same day, surrounding Jesus on this colt? He was sitting on this colt. All these people are throwing down their garments and palm branches. Guess what was surrounding him besides people? And this happened every single Passover, every single Thursday before the Passover. Hundreds of thousands of sheep to be slaughtered. What? Look at this. And then, so, okay, I'm trying to help you see the plan of salvation here. In the Old Testament, we have this Jewish sacrificial system, right? And what's central to the Jewish sacrificial system? The sacrifice of all these animals on Passover. And so when Jesus shows up, remember in John chapter 1, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away this excuse me, takes away the sin of the world. Jesus shows up three years later, riding on a donkey in the midst of hundreds of thousands of sheep to be slaughtered. And the minute that they were being slaughtered, he was being slaughtered on Calvary. Very same minute. So, God was tying. All this together. The only time I pound the pulpit is when I can't get through stuff. That's, that's my problem. I, I'm like, I wish I, my emotions would be under control. But <laughs> anyways, this was a stunning revelation of the sovereignty of God. 
And Mark is picturing it here for us. <clears throat> Jesus was controlling his timetable. He controlled at what point the religious leaders would be pushed beyond their ability to compose themselves. He, he controlled the, the timetable of when his disciples would come to full faith and understand who he was. He controlled the time which it would take to disciple them to the point where they could be apostles of Christ Jesus. The only question remaining is our final point. As we look at this passage, is Jesus my Lord? He's Lord of heaven, he's Lord of earth, he's Lord of the demonic world, he's Lord of disease, he's Lord of life. Is he my Lord? He is, no matter what your answer to that question is, he is. But it seems like everybody has submit to him except you and me. Is he Lord of my life? Or am I still Lord of my life? I've got my plans, I've got my objectives, I've got you know, all the stuff that i got to figure out here before I pass on. Really? Mark is presenting Jesus as Lord of all. The solution to your chaos, solution to mine, solution to world chaos. Is he Lord of my life? The key verse in, in the Bible is John 20, 31, and it says this. These things are written. What things? These things. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All these things are written. All these things are in front of us so that you may have life. Here's the offer of life. Take Jesus, the author of life. With him comes life, comes forgiveness of sins, comes, comes the elimination of chaos. The chaos solution is Jesus Christ. This is why people were running to him. They wanted their physical chaos resolved. He's offering much more than just solving physical chaos. He's solving our sin problem. He's solving our eternal problem. But he's demonstrating it by being Lord of life. I'm gonna close with this. I'm not sure how to insert this, and so I'm just gonna tack it on here. Hopefully it's not anticlimactic for you, but healing, think of healing. Isn't healing a creative act, right? Healing is a creative act. And you say, wait a minute, my doctor heals, and he's not God. Well, let me tell you a little bit difference between your doctor, my doctor, and Jesus. My doctor uses means, right? MRIs, uh, medication, physical therapy to heal me. You know how Jesus heals people? You know how I healed all these people here in Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through 12? With a command. With a word. Sometimes with a touch. No word. Jesus heals because he's God. No therapeutics. When he heals people, it's not like, oh man, three more weeks of physical therapy, I'm going to be good. No. It's disease, be gone. And it's gone. 
That's something my doctor can't do. I've asked him to. He won't. My doctor's a Christian man, so he acknowledges his limitations. But is Jesus your Lord this morning, friends? He's proven his identity, his worth. Sorry. My Apple Watch is responding to my question about Jesus. Even my Apple Watch knows who Jesus is. He says, Jesus is God. Did you hear that? My word. It's nice to know that God is sovereign over the details, isn't it? Friends, is Jesus your Lord? Are you ready to go another day without that? Of trying to pull it off yourself? I'm not, and I hope you're not. He came to embrace us. He came to draw us to himself. He came to be all that lords should be to their people. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest. Who's that? Jesus Christ. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the kind of Lord that you need. This is the kind of Lord that's offered to us in in Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, sending your son Jesus Christ was a really good idea. We're so thankful. We praise you for um, that eternal plan of God where you, Jesus Christ, our Savior and the Holy Spirit, uh, laid out the plan of redemption committed to accomplishing that plan through the details of human history with the person of Jesus Christ walking on this planet with us. Lord Jesus, we bow and worship you for all these wonderful truths of your uh, grandeur, of your majesty, your deity. Father, if there is a person in this room who has yet to, to bow the knee to Christ, I pray that they would do so that you would command them to come, which is the only way that we may come. Lord, command us to come. Command our friends, our family members, our neighbors to come by your grace. Bless us now as we go our way and think on these beautiful, wonderful, life-changing truths. It's in the name of our loving Savior and Lord Jesus. Amen.